Volume Two, Chapter Seven, The Mysteries of Udolpho. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. The Mysteries of Udolpho, by Anne Radcliffe. Volume Two, Chapter Seven. Of airy tongues that syllable men's names on sands and shores and desert wildernesses. Milton. It is now necessary to mention some circumstances which could not be related amidst the events of Emily's hasty departure from Venice, or together with those which so rapidly succeeded to her arrival in the castle. On the morning of her journey, Count Morano had gone at the appointed hour to the mansion of Montoni to demand his bride. When he reached it, he was somewhat surprised by the silence and solitary air of the portico, where Montoni's lackeys usually loitered. But surprise was soon changed to astonishment, and astonishment to the rage of disappointment, when the door was opened by an old woman, who told his servants that her master and his family had left Venice early in the morning for terra firma. Scarcely believing what his servants told, he left his gondola and rushed into the hall to inquire further. The old woman, who was the only person left in care of the mansion, persisted in her story, which the silent and deserted apartment soon convinced him was no fiction. He then seized her with a menacing air, as if he meant to wreak all his vengeance upon her, at the same time asking her twenty questions in a breath, and all these with a gesticulation so furious that she was deprived of the power of answering them. Then suddenly letting her go, he stamped about the hall like a madman, cursing Montoni and his own folly. When the good woman was at liberty, and had somewhat recovered from her fright, she told him all she knew of the affair, which was, indeed, very little, but enough to enable Morano to discover that Montoni was gone to his castle on the Apennine. Thither he followed as soon as his servants could complete the necessary preparation for the journey. Accompanied by a friend, and attended by a number of his people, determined to obtain Emily, or a full revenge on Montoni. When his mind had recovered from the first effervescent of rage, and his thoughts became less obscured, his conscience hinted to him certain circumstances, which, in some measure, explained the conduct of Montoni. But how the latter could have been led to suspect an intention, which, he had believed, was known only to himself, he could not even guess. On this occasion, however, he had been partly betrayed by that sympathetic intelligence which may be said to exist between bad minds, and which teaches one man to judge what another will do in the same circumstances. Thus it was with Montoni, who had now received indisputable proof of a truth which he had sometimes suspected, that Morano's circumstances, instead of being affluent, 
as he had been bidden to believe, were greatly involved. Montoni had been interested in his suit, by motives entirely selfish, those of avarice and pride, the last of which would have been gratified by an alliance with a Venetian nobleman, the former by Emily's estate in Gascony, which he had stipulated as the price of his favour, should be delivered up to him from the day of her marriage. In the meantime, he had been led to suspect the consequence of the Count's boundless extravagance, but it was not till the evening, preceding the intended nuptials, that he obtained certain information of his distressed circumstances. He did not hesitate then to infer that Murano designed to defraud him of Emily's estate, and in this supposition he was confirmed, and with apparent reason, by the subsequent conduct of the Count, who, after having appointed to meet him on that night for the purpose of signing the instrument, which was to secure to him his reward, failed in his engagement. Such a circumstance, indeed, in a man of Murano's gay and thoughtless character, and at a time when his mind was engaged by the bustle of preparation for his nuptials, might have been attributed to a cause less decisive than design, but Montoni did not hesitate an instant to intercept it his own way, and, after vainly awaiting the Count's arrival for several hours, he gave orders for his people to be in readiness to set off at a moment's notice. By hastening to Udolpho he intended to remove Emily from the reach of Murano, as well as to break off the affair without submitting himself to useless altercation, and, if the Count meant what he called honourable, he would doubtless follow Emily, and sign the writings in question. If this was done, so little consideration had Montoni for her welfare, that he would not have scrupled to sacrifice her to a man of ruined fortune, since by that means he could enrich himself, and he forbore to mention to her the motive of his sudden journey, lest the hope it might revive should render her more intractable, when submission would be required. With these considerations he had left Venice, and, with others totally different, Murano had, soon after, persuaded his steps across the rugged Apennines. When his arrival was announced at the castle, Montoni did not believe that he would have presumed to show himself unless he had meant to fulfil his engagement, and he, therefore, readily admitted him, but the enraged countenance and expressions of Murano as he entered the apartment instantly undeceived him, and when Montoni had explained, in part, the motives of his abrupt departure from Venice, the Count still persisted in demanding Emily, and reproaching Montoni without even naming the former stipulation. Montoni, at length, weary of the dispute, deferred the settling of it till the morrow, and Murano retired with some hope, suggested by Montoni's apparent indecision. When, however, in the silence of his own apartment, he began to consider the past conversation, the character of Montoni, 
and some former instances of his duplicity. The hope which he had admitted vanished, and he determined not to neglect the present possibility of obtaining Emily by other means. To his confidential valet he told his design of carrying away Emily, and sent him back to Montoni's servants to find out one among them, who might enable him to execute it. The choice of this person he entrusted to the fellow's own discernment, and not imprudently, for he discovered a man whom Montoni had, on some former occasion, treated harshly, and who was now ready to betray him. This man conducted Cicero round the castle, through a private passage, to the staircase that led to Emily's chamber, then showed him a short way out of the building, and afterwards procured him the keys that would secure his retreat. The man was well rewarded for his trouble. How the Count was rewarded for his treachery had already appeared. Meanwhile, old Carlo had overheard two of Morano's servants, who had been ordered to be in waiting with the carriage beyond the castle walls, expressing their surprise at their master's sudden and secret departure for the valet had entrusted them with no more of Murano's designs than it was necessary for them to execute. They, however, indulged themselves in surmises, and in expressing them to each other, and from these Carlo had drawn a just conclusion. But before he ventured to disclose his apprehensions to Montoni, he endeavoured to obtain further confirmation of them, and for this purpose placed himself, with one of his fellow-servants, at the door of Emily's apartment that opened upon the corridor. He did not watch long in vain, though the growling of the dog had once nearly betrayed him, when he was convinced that Murano was in the room, and had listened long enough to his conversation to understand his scheme. He immediately alarmed Montoni, and thus rescued Emily from the designs of the Count. Montoni, on the following morning, appeared as usual, except that he wore his wounded arm in a sling. He went out upon the ramparts, overlooked the men employed in repairing them, gave orders for additional workmen, and then came into the castle to give audience to several persons who were just arrived and who were shown into a private apartment, where he communicated with them for near an hour. Carlo was then summoned, and ordered to conduct the strangers to a part of the castle, which, in former times, had been occupied by the upper servants of the family, and to provide them with every necessary refreshment. When he had done this, he was bidden to return to his master. Meanwhile, the Count remained in a cottage in the skirts of the woods below, suffering under bodily and mental pain, and meditating deep revenge against Montoni. His servant, whom he had dispatched for a surgeon to the nearest town, which was, however, at a considerable distance, did not return till the following day, when, his wounds being examined and dressed, the practitioner refused to deliver any positive opinion concerning the degree of danger attending them, 
but given his patient a composing draught and ordering him to be quiet, remained at the cottage to watch the event. Emily, for the remainder of the late eventful night, had been suffered to sleep, undisturbed, and, when her mind recovered from the confusion of slumber, and she remembered that she was now released from the addresses of Count Morano, her spirits were suddenly relieved from a part of the terrible anxiety that had long oppressed them, that which remained arose chiefly from a recollection of Morano's assertions concerning the schemes of Montoni. He had said that plans of the latter concerning Emily were insearchable, yet that he knew them to be terrible. At the time he uttered this, she almost believed it to be designed for the purpose of prevailing with her to throw herself into his protection, and she still thought it might be chiefly so accounted for. But his assertions had left an impression on her mind, which a consideration of the character and former conduct of Montoni did not contribute to efface. She, however, checked her propensity to anticipate evil, and, determined to enjoy this respite from actual misfortune, tried to dismiss thought, took her instruments for drawing, and placed herself at a window to select into a landscape some features of the scenery without. As she was thus employed, she saw, walking on the rampart below, the men who had so lately arrived at the castle. The sight of strangers surprised her, but still more of strangers such as these. There were a singularity in their dress, and a certain fierceness in their air, that fixed all her attention. She withdrew from the casement while they passed, but soon returned to observe them further. Their figures seemed so well suited to the wildness of the surrounding objects, that, as they stood surveying the castle, she sketched them for banditti, amid the mountain view of her picture, when she had finished which, she was surprised to observe the spirit of her group. But she had copied from nature. Carlo, when he had placed refreshment before these men in the apartment assigned to them, returned, as he was ordered, to Montoni, who was anxious to discover by what servant the keys of the castle had been delivered to Murano on the preceding night. But this man, though he was too faithful to his master quietly to see him injured, would not betray a fellow-servant even to justice. He, therefore, pretended to be ignorant who it was that had conspired with Count Murano, and related, as before, that he had only overheard some of the strangers describing the plot. Montoni's suspicions naturally fell upon the porter, whom he ordered now to attend. Carlo hesitated, and then, with slow steps, went to seek him. Barnardine, the porter, denied the accusation, with a countenance so steady and undaunted, that Montoni could scarcely believe him guilty, though he knew not how to think him innocent. At length, the man was dismissed from his presence, and, though the real offender, escaped detection. 
Montoni then went to his wife's apartment, whither Emily followed soon after, but, finding them in high dispute, was instantly leaving the room, when her aunt called her back, and desired her to stay. "'You shall be a witness,' said she, "'of my opposition. "'Now, sir, repeat the command. "'I have so often refused to obey.' Montoni turned, with a stern countenance, to Emily, and bade her quit the apartment, while his wife persisted in desiring that she would stay. Emily was eager to escape from this scene of contention, and anxious also to serve her aunt, but she despaired of conciliating Montoni, in whose eyes the rising tempest of his soul flashed terribly. "'Leave the room,' said he, in a voice of thunder. Emily obeyed, and walking down to the rampart, which the strangers had now left, continued to meditate on the unhappy marriage of her father's sister, and on her own desolate situation, occasioned by the ridiculous imprudence of her, whom she had always wished to respect and love. Madame Montoni's conduct had, indeed, rendered it impossible for Emily to do either, but her gentle heart was touched by her distress, and, in the pity thus awakened, she forgot the injurious treatment she had received from her. As she sauntered on the rampart, Annette appeared at the hall door, looked cautiously round, and then advanced to meet her. "'Dear Mademoiselle, I have been looking for you all over the castle,' said she. "'If you will step this way, I will show you a picture.' "'A picture?' exclaimed Emily, and shuddered. "'Yes, ma'am, a picture of the late lady of this place. Old Carlo just now told me it was her.' and I thought you would be curious to see it. As to my lady, you know, mademoiselle, one cannot talk about such things to her. And so, said Emily smilingly, as you must talk of them to somebody. Why, yes, mademoiselle, what can one do in such a place as this? If one must not talk, if I was in a dungeon, if they would let me talk, it would be some comfort, nay? I would talk, if it was only to the walls. But come, mademoiselle, we lose time. Let me show you to the picture. It is veiled, said Emily, pausing. Dear mademoiselle, said Annette, fixing her eyes on Emily's face, what makes you look so pale? Are you ill? No, Annette, I am well enough, but I have no desire to see this picture. Returning to the hall, "'What, ma'am? Not to see the lady of this castle?' said the girl. "'The lady, who disappeared too strangely?' "'Well, now, I would have run to the furthest mountain we can see, "'yonder, to have got a sight of such a picture. "'And, to speak my mind, that strange story is all "'that makes me care about this old castle, "'though it makes me thrill all over, as it were,' whenever I think of it. Yes, Annette, you love the wonderful, but do you know that, unless you guard against this inclination, it will lead you into all the misery of superstition? 
Annette might have smiled in her turn at this sage observation of Emily, who could tremble with ideal terrors as much as herself, and listen almost as eagerly to the recital of a mysterious story. Annette urged her request. "'Are you sure it is a picture?' said Emily. "'Have you seen it? Is it veiled?' "'Holy Maria, mademoiselle. Yes, no, yes.' I am sure it is a picture. I have seen it, and it is not veiled. The tone and look of surprise with which this was uttered recalled Emily's prudence, who concealed her emotion under a smile, and bade Annette lead her to the picture. It was in an obscure chamber, adjoining that part of the castle, allotted to the servants. Several other portraits hung on the walls, covered like this, with dust and cobweb. That is it, mademoiselle, said Annette, in a low voice, and pointing. Emily advanced, and surveyed the picture. It represented a lady in the flower of youth and beauty. Her features were handsome and noble, full of strong expression, but had little of the captivating sweetness that Emily had looked for and still less of the pensive mildness she loved. It was a countenance which spoke the language of passion, rather than that of sentiment, a haughty impatience of misfortune, not the placid melancholy of a spirit injured, yet resigned. How many years have passed since this lady disappeared, Annette, said Emily. Twenty years, mademoiselle, or thereabout. As they tell me, I know it is a long while ago. Emily continued to gaze upon the portrait. I think, resumed Annette, the signor would do well to hang it in a better place than this old chamber. Now, in my mind, he ought to place the picture of a lady who gave him all these riches in the handsomest room in the castle but he may have good reasons for what he does. And some people do say that he has lost his riches as well as his gratitude. But hush, ma'am, not a word, added Annette. Laying her finger on her lips, Emily was too much absorbed in thought to hear what she said. "'Tis a handsome lady, I am sure, continued Annette. The signor need not be ashamed to put her in the great apartment, where the veil picture hangs. Emily turned round, but for that matter, she would be as little seen there as here, for the door is always locked, I find. Let us leave this chamber, said Emily, and let me caution you again, Annette. Be guarded in your conversation, and never tell that you know anything of that picture." "'Holy mother!' exclaimed Annette. "'It is no secret. "'Why, all the servants have seen it already.' "'Emily started. "'How is this?' said she. "'Have seen it. "'When? "'How?' "'Dear mademoiselle, there is nothing surprising in that. "'We had all a little more curiousness than you had. "'I thought you told me the door was kept locked,' said Emily.' If that was the case, mademoiselle, replied Annette, looking about her, 
How could we get here? Oh, you mean this picture, said Emily, with returning calmness. Well, Annette, here is nothing more to engage my attention. We will go. Emily, as she passed to her own apartment, saw Montoni go down to the hall, and she turned into her aunt's dressing room, whom she found weeping and alone, grief and resentment struggling on her countenance. Pride had hitherto restrained complaint. Judging of Emily's disposition from her own, and from a consciousness of what her treatment of her deserved, she had believed that her griefs would be cause of triumph to her niece, rather than of sympathy, that she would despise, not pity her. But she knew not the tenderness and benevolence of Emily's heart, that had always taught her to forget her own injuries in the misfortunes of her enemy. The sufferings of others, whoever they might be, called forth her ready compassion, which dissipated at once every obscuring cloud to goodness that passion or prejudice might have raised in her mind. Madame Montoni's sufferings, at length, rose above her pride, and when Emily had before entered the room, she would have told them all, had not her husband prevented her. Now that she was no longer restrained by his presence, she poured forth all her complaints to her niece. Oh, Emily, she explained, I am the most wretched of women. I am indeed cruelly treated. Who, with my prospects of happiness, could have foreseen such a wretched fate as this? Who could have thought, when I married such a man as the Signor, I should ever have to bewail my lot? But there is no judging what is for the best. There is no knowing what is for our good. The most flattering prospects often change. The best judgments may be deceived. Who could have foreseen, when I married the Signor, that I should ever repent my generosity? Emily thought she might have foreseen it, but this was not a thought of triumph. She placed herself in a chair near her aunt, took her hand, and, with one of those looks of soft compassion, which might characterize the countenance of a guardian angel, spoke to her in the tenderest accents. But these did not soothe Madame Montoni, whom impatience to talk made unwilling to listen. She wanted to complain, not to be consoled, and it was by exclamations of complaint only that Emily learned the particular circumstances of her affliction. Ungrateful man, said Madame Montoni, he has deceived me in every respect, and now he has taken me from my country and friends to shut me up in this old castle, and here he thinks he can compel me to do whatever he designs. But he shall find himself mistaken. He shall find that no threats can alter. But who would have believed? Who would have supposed that a man of his family and apparent wealth had absolutely no fortune? No, scarcely a sequin of his own. I did all for the best. I thought he was a man of consequence, 
of great property, or I am sure I would never have married him. Ungrateful, artful man. She paused to take breath. Dear madam, be composed, said Emily. The signor may not be so rich as you had reason to expect, but surely he cannot be very poor, since this castle and the mansion of Venice are his. May I ask what are the circumstances that particularly affect you? What are the circumstances? exclaimed Madame Montoni with resentment. Why, is it not sufficient that he had long ago ruined his own fortune by play, and that he has since lost what I brought him, and that now he would compel me to sign away my settlement? It was well I had the chief of my property settled on myself, that he may lose this also, or throw it away in wild schemes, which nobody can understand but himself, and, and is not all this sufficient? It is indeed, said Emily, but you must recollect, dear madam, that I knew nothing of all this. Well, and is it not sufficient, rejoined her aunt, that he is also absolutely ruined, that he is sunk deeply in debt, and that neither this castle or the mansion at Venice is his own. If all his debts, honourable and dishonourable, were paid, I am shocked by what you tell me, madam, said Emily. And is it not enough, interrupted Madame Montoni, that he has treated me with neglect, with cruelty, because I refused to relinquish my settlements, and, instead of being frightened by his menaces, resolutely defied him, and upbraided him with his shameful conduct. But I bore all meekly. You know, niece, I never uttered a word of complaint, till now, no, that such a disposition as mine should be so imposed upon, that I, whose only faults are too much kindness, too much generosity, should be chained for life to such a vile, deceitful, cruel monster. Want of breath compelled Madame Montoni to stop. If anything could have made Emily smile in these moments, it would have been this speech of her aunt, delivered in a voice very little below a scream, and with a vehemence of gesticulation and of countenance that turned the whole into burlesque. Emily saw that her misfortunes did not admit of real consolation, and, contemning the commonplace terms of superficial comfort, she was silent, while Madame Montoni, jealous of her own consequence, mistook this for the silence of indifference, or of contempt, and reproached her with want of duty and feeling. Oh, I suspected what all this boasted sensibility would prove to be, rejoined she. I thought it would not teach you to feel either duty or affection for your relations who have treated you like their own daughter. Pardon me, madam, said Emily, mildly. It is not natural to me to boast, and if it was, I am sure I would not boast of sensibility, a quality, perhaps, more to be feared than desired. Well, well, niece, I will not dispute with you, but as I said, Montoni threatens me with violence if I any longer refuse to sign away my settlements. 
and this was the subject of our contest. When you came into the room before. Now, I am determined no power on earth shall make me do this. Neither will I bear all this tamely. He shall hear his true character from me. I will tell him all he deserves, in spite of his threats and cruel treatment. Emily seized a pause of Madame Montoni's voice to speak. Dear Madame, said she, but will not this serve to irritate the signor unnecessarily? Will it not provoke the harsh treatment you dread? I do not care, replied Madame Montoni. It does not signify. I will not submit to such usage. You would have me give up my settlements, too, I suppose? No, madam, I do not exactly mean that. What is it you do mean, then? You spoke of reproaching the Signor, said Emily, with hesitation. Why, does he not deserve reproaches, said her aunt? Certainly he does. But will it be prudent in you, madam, to make them? Prudent? explained Madame Montoni. Is this a time to talk of prudence, when one is threatened with all sorts of violence? It is to avoid that violence, that prudence is necessary, said Emily. Of prudence, continued Madame Montoni, without attending to her, of prudence towards a man, who does not scruple to break all the common ties of humanity in his conduct to me? And is it for me to consider prudence in my behaviour towards him? I am not so mean. It is for your own sake, not for the signors, madam, said Emily modestly, that you should consult prudence. Your reproaches, however just, cannot punish him, but they may provoke him to further violence against you. What? Would you have me submit? Then... To whatever he commands, would you have me kneel down at his feet and thank him for his cruelties? Would you have me give up my settlements? How much you mistake me, madam, said Emily. I am unequal to advise you on a point so important as the last. But you will pardon me for saying that, if you consult your own peace, you will try to conciliate Signor Montoni rather than to irritate him by reproaches. Conciliate, indeed. I tell you, niece, it is utterly impossible. I disdain to attempt it. End of chapter 20, part A